When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning team, David Crockett, Peter Pan, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardo. Bardo. You got a little excited there, didn't you, with Bardo? And why not, Katie? I don't blame you. Hello again, and welcome to episode 49 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce, and can I just start, Katie, by saying Happy New Year to you and to all our fire listeners. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Brigitte Bardot. And we did talk to Billy about Brigitte Bardot, did we not, Tom? What a massive fan of the Bardot oeuvre (laughs) (laughs) Billy turned out to be. There was a wistfulness, wasn't there, Katie, in his voice, as he described how him and his mates used to try and see Brigitte Bardot films, or if they couldn't get access to films, just stare misty-eyed at posters of Brigitte Bardot. I think it was actually much more specific. Uh, It was a case of whenever a film of hers would come on their tiny little television screens, (laughs) they would all coordinate via the (laughs) hall telephone to see if they could catch a nip slip. A BB nip slip. Because the rumor (laughs) was, once she stepped into a sudsy bath, you could see some manner of erect nipple. And that's (laughs) what they were signing up for. But sadly, nothing of the sort ever appeared. No. Katie, what's your um, dealings with Brigitte? Were you ever influenced by the look? (laughs) My dealings with Brigitte were very much of uh, uh, failed attempts to style myself like Brigitte Bardot when I was 21. Um, the, the attempts were absolutely doomed. She was a lithe sylph. I was a shapely dumpling. Her breasts were missile silos. Mine were <laughs> French fancies. Uh, it was pretty much an exercise in self-loathing to compare myself to her. So, uh, in fact, I was going for that halfway point between Anne-Margaret and Brigitte Bardot. So I dyed my hair red, but then I did the cinched in waist, the push-up bra, the circle skirt, the kitten heels, and a fall of real hair that I clipped into the crown of my own teased hair. So it kind of turned it into sort of a bouffant situation. Uh, Tom, could I run? Could I move? (laughs) Could I breathe in this getup? No. But did I look like Anne-Margaret or Brigitte Bardot? 
also know. <laughs> I probably resembled a try-hard extra from a high school production of Grease. Well, I'm delighted, Katie, that you have recreated that look in the studio today. I mean, I just I think it suits you. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you? Did you uh, share a uh, fascination with uh, Brigitte's décolletage along with Billy Joel? <laughs> I remember watching And God Created Woman, possibly her most uh, notorious, infamous film, in the sweet spot when I was about 17. Oh, yeah. And just thinking, look at, look at Brigitte. <laughs> Which I think is the effect that film and Brigitte in that film had on generations of yeah. young men. I mean, I had that same world. reaction as well. I mean, she kind of, it crossed all genders, all sexual orientations. I mean, she is just sex on a stick as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and the French accent makes a massive difference as well, doesn't it? It doesn't matter. Like, I don't know what Brigitte sounds like to a French person. Like, she might sound like that, Cody. I don't know. <laughs> But because she's French, she just think everything is sexy and wonderful. Yeah, and she, she might is. be a terrible actress, but who can tell? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Katie, we could talk all day about Brigitte Bardot, but I'm glad to say we have someone else to join the reveries. I'm also glad to say it's a return for our friend Caroline O'Donoghue, the author and podcaster, who, of course, was our catcher in The Rye Guest. Bienvenue, Caroline. Oh, bonjour. Bonjour, bonjour. Bonjour, mes amis. <laughs> that will be the beginning and the end of all French spoken on this podcast. <laughs> what was your first exposure to BB? Um, I think probably the same as you, Katie, really. Well, my my um my father was a massive um cinephile and we had a lot growing up we had a lot of those you know, those big kind of coffee table books on like oh, the yeah. films of the 50s and <laughs> stars of the silver screen. And just like our house was completely padded out with, um, you know, those kind of celebrity biographies that are mostly waxy white pages of pictures of these people. <laughs> so I kind of poured through this stuff from a really young age. And Brigitte is, she was one of the ones I fixated on. It was Hepburn, Garbo and Bardot <laughs> were my three um, big obsessions. And I think Bardot was the one that translated the most into my teen life because as Katie has just said, of all of the unattainable Hollywood bombshells of yesteryear, there's <laughs> something about Bardot's look that feels the most attainable. Like if you if you look at Marilyn Monroe, you look at those um, you know, those extremely set curls that really structured underwear that made that ridiculous physique. You know, even Marilyn Monroe's facial features, they seem like once in a generation, there's kind of a, a sort of a slopingness to her eyes. And like, basically there's no way you can recreate Marilyn Monroe in your home. But if you're 16 and you own some black clothes and some eyeliner <laughs> and a comb, <laughs> you can sort of squint and pretend that you're doing a bardo. And that meant a lot to me. And I think that's why she, that image of her, really maintains across the gender divide like she is a style icon to girls and a sex symbol to guys and that will just never end I think and also not even across the gender divide but across uh the high low uh you know eggheads and the dunderheads French intellectual Simone de Beauvoir said in a 1959 essay called the Lolita syndrome she described Bardot as a locomotive of women's history so she's yes. a, a right little chugger there. Uh, it, it's such a fabulous essay, that Lolita Syndrome one. I, I um, actually read it in preparation for this podcast. But um, there's this whole, basically the entire argument of that essay, which was then published into a short book, was like, 
everyone loves Brigitte Bardot except us, comma, the French, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it was her, like, even as far as 1960 being like, this poor sexy woman, why aren't we nicer to her? <laughs> so yeah. Simone wasn't a fan or she was saying that the French should be a fan? No, she was a massive fan. It, it was so, it's so funny reading that essay because it reads very much like the kind of essay you might read in like The Atlantic or mm. even in BuzzFeed today of like someone being like, this, this woman that the paparazzi pick on and that is so maligned, um, why, why aren't we kinder to her? Why aren't we appreciating what she's doing for femininity and sexuality? And the argument that, that de Beauvoir was trying to make was, um, first of all, that the French people had a kind of real tallest poppy syndrome when it came to Brigitte, which has a lot to do with the fact that even though Brigitte was em embraced by Americans and American teens in particular, she never left France. So she kind of had the worst of both worlds. Like they kind of thought of her as like the way that we think of James Corden now. <laughs> like, <laughs> Are you saying that Corden is the bardo of the, of the 21st century? <laughs> In a way, because people, <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about James Corden, but you know how we look at James Corden and we think he's taking this kind of clownish idea of what being English is and then selling it to this mass audience that doesn't really care what Englishness is. Bardot was doing that with Frenchness, but she also still lived in France while she was doing it. So she was really easy to be mean to. <laughs> I think also there was a element of misogyny as well. And just that idea of denigrating uh, the work of an actor who was a woman, like, oh, it's a woman. So yeah. it doesn't mean as much. I mean, if it were a male French star uh, hitting it big around the world, it'd be a whole different ball of wax. So I want to get into her early life because, you know, we know her as this gorgeous, uh, hedonistic, free spirit who embodies this whole sense of Sybarite pleasure and freedom. But I understand that she had quite strict parents. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, really, because when you when you sort of read about Bardot or witness her on screen, that or or you know get into any of the criticism that exists around her, um, the word com uh, that comes up again and again is creature and animal and like this mm. thing that just emerged um, seemingly not to know the rules of society. And then you look into her childhood, and it's so rigid it's really categorized by its rigidity so she had these upper middle class french parents lived in this like very chic apartment in paris um her and her sister were kind of pushed into dance very catholic parents so she had this thing where at home her parents were extremely restrictive not forthcoming with their affection very catholic and then she also was in the conservatoire de paris which is one of the sort of strictest dance schools in the world. I, I actually spoke to a friend who is French who, who attended there as a child and said things like, you know, they would sort of measure, they would get an eight-year-old and sort of like measure the distance between her knee and her thigh just to see whether the proportions were right. So it's like, Ugh. you know, at home it was restrictive and rigid. You know, socially everything was so restrictive and rigid. Her, her entire worth was sort of being decided by these things that were so unsensual, so unbodily. So it's so ironic that she became the essence of sensuality and, and bodily pleasure. And it's, you know, it's as a as a former Catholic schoolgirl myself, I recognize it. Because <laughs> it's well, kind yeah. of a thing of 
kicking back, you know, so far that you've, you know, launched yourself so far away from what you came from. Yeah, because apparently uh, her mother insisted on choosing her friends. Therefore, she had no friends. (laughs) And uh, her dad apparently used to whip her and her sister for minor infractions like, oh, you broke a vase in the living room. Let's get out the whip and put you through your paces. That vase story um, is, uh, is something that vase anecdote comes up a lot for the obvious reason of she never quite got over it because it, it comes up again and again in interviews where she's playing under a table. She, I think she kind of, you know, grabs the tablecloth, a vase falls out, it breaks. And from that moment on, according to Bardot, her father said to her, you know, you're no longer a member of this family and you will refer to me and your mother by the formal vu. <laughs> what was this vase? <laughs> yeah, what, was what? How, what was this vase? <laughs> yeah, did it have like the, the ashes of the family dead dog in it or, you know, a f- gold bullion? Honestly, that vase is basically the stand-in for Pandora's box because Brigitte <laughs> broke it and then all yeah. the evil of the world came out. She divorced herself from her parents and then just became... A sexy lady. <laughs> so what is the breakthrough, Caroline, for Brigitte Bardot in terms of the wider recognition outside this cruel and um, unpleasant family? So it's interesting because um, even though her mother was so um, strict with what Brigitte and her sister could do, she also was desperate to push Brigitte forward as being this kind of young society lady. And off the back of that, she um, off the back of Brigitte's dancing, she gets noticed by photographers. She starts appearing in catalogues. Eventually, aged, I think, 15, she ends up in Elle magazine. A director spots her uh, because her face is just so striking, even at that age, and sends his camera assistant, a little guy by the name of Roger Vadim, to go and find Brigitte. And uh, he finds her, meets her, and they fall in love, deeply, deeply in love. And, and, you know, Vadim is, he's kind of a different... She's a completely different person to Bardot would have ever met up until that point. He was this bohemian. I think his father was like a Russian aristocrat or something. Everything about him was just drenched in sort of romance and liberation. And obviously her parents hated him straight away. Mm. But what began then was this sexual connection that began when she was really, really young um, and sort of defined her and... made her this sort of creature of sensuality. I like this line I read in Wikipedia. Uh, It says, her parents opposed her becoming an actress, but her grandfather was supportive, saying that if this little girl is to become a whore, cinema will not be the cause. I mean, that's supportive. That counted as supportive in that family. (laughs) And also, it tells us a lot about the manner of the young Bardot, I think. Because I think... And maybe what, what created that restrictive household to begin with? Because it could be, okay, we got these conservative parents anyway. And they see that they have, you know, everyone knows that 12-year-old girl who's just a little bit too into herself and is kind of always sort of wiggling around the place and sort of shaking down her hair and sort of feeling herself. And you could see, <laughs> you could see they, they saw that. And obviously the grandfather saw it too in the sense of like, look, that little girl is yeah. growing up. How she's going to grow up. Let's not blame cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so what are her early films like, Caroline? I've only seen And God Create Woman. I haven't seen, for example, Crazy for Love, 1952. And I haven't seen Doctor at Sea, 1955. Is she the sex kitten of later years in these early ones? Well, that's the thing. Nobody has seen those movies. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are basically these um, these little appearances 
I think there's one called the girl in the bikini where she is the titular girl in the bikini, where it is your your classic sort of summer rom-coms of just um, Bardo is a sexy girl wearing a bikini, driving some teenage boys crazy, <laughs> the end. But Vadim at this point, he's often credited as being this kind of Svengali figure in her life and was obsessed with the idea of, of making her into this huge symbol. And he was placing her in these films. He was an up and coming filmmaker himself. He was also really young. Um, and it would be they would pull all these stunts together like they would go to the Cannes Film Festival and she was just the most naked person on earth there. (laughs) (laughs) She just had like a little bit of dental floss covering the the various uh, nooks and crannies. Exactly. She was truly pushing the limits of what uh, could officially constitute as clothing Um, (laughs) and and sort of, you know, creating news there. And these things, they worked. And eventually um, Vadim works his way up into his own movie, which is And God Created Woman, which is really when the world met Bardo. And it's the it's the film that you've seen as well, Tom, isn't it? That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. I've certainly seen it. I mean, that, And God Created Woman is the film that put the bounce in everyone's pounce when it came to Brigitte Bardot. And uh, basically, it's just um, a delightful sojourn with Bebe as she slinks her way across sand and disco floors undulating. Oh, it's the thing about that movie is that you can tell it's by a um, a new director. Like it's not good. Like it's it's <laughs> <laughs> that telltale sign of a new director. Bad. <laughs> like it's 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 something that almost has the shape of like a Doris Day movie. But you know, it's like oh, there's two brothers and they both love the same woman and there's this random millionaire there for and like it, it kind of feels. Like it's supposed to be this Hollywood rom-com, except that it's just oozing with sort of sex and oddness. It, it, it really <laughs> feels like when, when a new creator, a young artist is like, okay, I'm going to take what I know about Hollywood and I'm going to put my spin on it. And my spin on it is my sexy wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so French. Um, but the thing is, it's not a great movie, but the, there's great stuff in it, and which which makes it sort of last. And the, the two scenes I always think about in the, that movie is, first of all, I wonder if you guys remember them, is the wedding lunch scene. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, remind me of that one. I'm thinking about so, the dance, so let's talk about the wedding bit first. Yeah. Yes, that was the other one I was going to get to, but the, the wedding sort of lunch thing first. So basically, the kind of plot of it is, is... Um, you know, Brigitte plays Juliette and she's kind of a ward of the state who's living as kind of a maid in somebody's house. Um, they want to fire her and send her back to some orphanage wherever she came from. Um, and the the sort of so many men in the town are in love with her and love sleeping with her and love flirting with her. That They're basically like, somebody has to marry the town trollop in order to keep the town trollop in town <laughs> because she is needed. <laughs> we need... We need her here. We need her for morale. Exactly. It was it's so we need her for morale. <laughs> and so this um in particular these two brothers and you know one of them is her childhood sweetheart, the other one is sort of the young well-meaning brother who kind of thinks he can make a proper wife out of Juliet and is just besotted with her. He marries her out, like against the wishes of absolutely everyone. <laughs> um the mother freaks out, the father freaks out. This is a this is like an old family in Saint-Tropez. Nobody is hopeful for how this marriage is going to go, but they put on a wedding breakfast for the couple anyway. But the couple get back from the church 
and there's this beautiful buffet all laid out. There's lobsters and everything. Nobody is happy, but everyone is eating or waiting to eat. And then Bardot just drags this poor 17-year-old boy <laughs> upstairs, just bangs the life out of him for oh, yeah. what seems like maybe two to three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's quick recovery time with those young people. <laughs> exactly. And then she just comes down in his dressing gown and just sort of doesn't say a word to them and sort of looks from under her kind of lowered eyelashes and grabs a plate, loads up the plate with just an insane amount of luscious food and then just walks back upstairs without a word to any of them. <laughs> oh, I love the cut of her jib. Yeah, and it's so strange, that whole character, because... In one scene, she'll be like, um, you know, throwing herself at one brother or another. And she's just so overcome with these passions. And she's, as de Beauvoir said, um, she's this creature of instinct and impulse. It's like she, there is no yesterday and there is no tomorrow. There's kind of only now. But then once she's, you know, at one point she's betrayed the man she's married because she's shagged the brother that she's actually in love with. She's so deeply, deeply like upset and thrown off balance because she's kind of, it's almost like it, it does feel like an Eve moment of realizing that there are consequences to things. And she goes to this like tiny little bar in the town. She sits there all day and drinks double scotches, just absolutely appalled with herself. And then there's this, this kind of brings us to the second famous scene in that movie, which is the Mambo scene. And so downstairs there's this, um, you know, mambo jazz band that are warming up for their performance later in the night. And she she kind of wanders downstairs barefoot. It's important that she is barefoot in like 90% of all of her roles. <laughs> <laughs> and she wanders down and she's kind of half pissed and sort of stumbling down. And there's kind of that 4 p.m. sheen on her forehead. <laughs> and she starts sort of swaying a little and then she just starts dancing. And the dancing kind of goes on and on and on and it gets wilder and more kind of manic and uncontrolled and it's kind of implicit but like all of the uh, musicians are black and this is you know this is peak Jim Crow era in the US so that was shocking as well because here's a woman who's like abandoning all social convention and is barefoot on a dusty basement floor just getting down because she needs and wants to be there and it must have been incredibly shocking. And, and even just the length of the scene and the kind of like the carnality and the, the slight mania. And then all of these men who have spent the entire film being obsessed with her slowly kind of gather around her. And they keep shouting at her to stop, but they seem weirdly paralyzed by her at the same time. It's a very strange and incredibly moving scene. I, do, I don't know whether I recommend the movie, but I do recommend people look up that scene on YouTube because it's still strangely affecting. Watching it, there are several remarkable things about it. So Brigitte's outfit, the sort of tight-fitting black, it's like the top half of a leotard. And then the sort of swirly uh, dark green skirt. There's a fair amount of leg rubbing going on <laughs> and a bit of chest rubbing going on. And the blokes who are watching, as you say, they seem frozen, but they're also pretty much licking their lips. And then towards the end of the scene, there is a very phallic moment where both the white men watching reach into their pockets and withdraw guns. Let me just take this opportunity to withdraw my gun. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a good time to do this. 
even watching it now all these years later you can it is one of the sexiest things you'll ever see isn't it yeah it's incredible and as well the thing of like this trained ballerina doing this kind of dance that just seems so abandoned it's just i don't know it's it just works it just still works i don't think bardot is a great actress i think what bardot is is she plays bardot on screen and we can talk about you know the ways in which that served and didn't serve her um, but you can't you can't deny the presence, even if you can deny the skill. Well, after that, I need to collect myself for a moment. So let's take a break for some ads. Hello, it's me again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called Dot Com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them. We've just found a way in the Wiki universe to do that. This is a hidden world, and it is fascinating. So if you're digging the fire, you will love this. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe now. How? Does this film change everything for her, Caroline? It changes everything. (laughs) Yes, it completely blows up. You know, everybody wants a piece of her. She becomes a huge, huge celebrity. As you were saying with what Billy Joel himself said was that this movie the reputation preceded it in so many places because obviously most cinemas in the US aren't going to have an awful lot of French cinema, French film coming through. And so people heard about it, but they didn't see it. So it became this, this taboo item. And then you have like all these like um, religious groups that are speaking out against it. There's this ban Bardot thing. Um, Like people are scanned. The people who, haven't seen it are already scandalized by it and of course that's going to create this huge rumble within the youth movement it feels at some points like uh, vadim and bardo have a, a marriage off because she ends up getting married four times he trumps that by getting married six times he um, does. and then he writes a remarkable book later in his life with uh, a very endearing title katie which is uh, references the other ladies he squires through the years it's called bardo de nerve and fonda my life with the three most beautiful women in the world he was smart to include jane fonda because of uh, barbarella being such a big splash for which both is, of which them. is very Bridget Bardot, isn't it? When you watch Jane yeah. Fonda in that, the outfits, the hair. Yeah. If I were Jane Fonda at that time, I wouldn't be too happy about that. He'd be like, uh, let's get you back to makeup and wing that eyeliner a little bit more so you can look like uh, my ex. Well, do you know what? It's it's funny you bring that up because there seems to be form for this, whereas sort of men get a taste of Bardot and they never quite forget her. Because if we think about her relationship with um, Serge Gainsbourg, the other sort of huge French icon of the time, um, who was, of course, this, you know, this pop star, this extremely famous pop star. Um, They had a date while she was still married to, I think, her third husband. I can't remember his name, but I know he was German. Um, Oh, Gunter Sachs? Gunter Sachs, I think his name was. Yes, just the most German name a person could have. Yeah. (laughs) For for Graham Sachs, isn't it? I think Gunter Sachs. Um, So she she goes on this date with with Gainsbourg and... um, they apparently they have a kind of a crappy first date and sort of she says to him if you ever want to see me again you'll write me the most beautiful love song anyone's ever heard 
Um, mm. And he went away and wrote two. Well, what he calls two, I don't think... The first is Bonnie and Clyde, which, although a banger, is also just a translation of um, Bonnie Parker's original poem. Uh, the second is... I wonder if you can name it. Yeah, so he wrote that, but she forbade him from releasing it. Now, why is that? Well, because she was still married and Sachs had oh. threatened to sue him. <laughs> A little litigation there, but deflating the tumescence. What freaks me out about the whole Jatem story the most, because it is this thing of like, okay, they record this incredibly steamy song together. Um, then, you know, they have to shelve it because of her inconvenient marriage. But then Gainsbourg... <laughs> makes his next girlfriend, Jane Birkin, re-record it. Mm. Like, making your new girlfriend re-record something your ex-girlfriend originally did is weird enough, but the fact that it's that song is mad to me. <laughs> See, for me, Caroline, because my when I first became aware of Serge Gainsbourg, it was when he was saying hugely inappropriate things to Whitney Houston on yes, a me French too. chat yes. show and at that point he's washed up he's an alcoholic I think and he is, he's not in the peak that he was in when he was doing Chatem and Bonnie and Clyde um, so I've always had a slightly a sense that that song Chatem is, is quite funny in a way but then I've watched back the video to Bonnie and Clyde which you can find on YouTube and I'm seeing a very different surge in that I mean it's a terrible video Katie um, there's a lot of just standing around smoking, which is very French as well. <laughs> but it's an amazing song. Bernie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Bernie and Clyde. Bernie and Clyde. That is such a weird song because it has that weird. That goes all the way through that little, I don't know what that is. Is that kind of a Brazilian percussive instrument that goes all the way through? But she is the worst singer with no timing. (laughs) And she just, her delivery is so leaden. I mean, I know, Tom, earlier you were waxing poetic about her French tones. However, in the context of Bonnie and Bonnie and Claude. She's like a French version of Nico from the Velvet Underground, isn't she? Oh, she she can't get Nico can carry a tune. Uh, you guys, no, Nico can carry a tune. No, I mean, Katie, I'm afraid you're wrong. It's a banger. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a banger despite Brigitte Bardot, or maybe because she's so awkward. I find her stupendously awkward. Um, I can see that Brigitte Bardot is somebody who is kind of so unpinned downable that it takes uh, other people who are similarly outside the straight and narrow to kind of get it. The interesting thing with her and... I mean, there are many interesting things about her, as well as incredibly troubling things that I'm sure we'll get to, um, is that she seemed to kind of, I guess because she met her first husband so young and because she was made to sort of value her sensuality as being her prized thing, she depended on men and male control a lot. She, she famously did not bond with her uh, only child, Nicholas. And I think that's a lot to do with if you can't, like if you have a baby you can't be the baby and i think her her vibe with a lot of the men in her life was i'm a baby i'm a sexy baby (laughs) and so she sort of did need these strong personalities to twist her around i can relate (laughs) i think you've just identified what my issue is (laughs) 
There's a lovely line from her, Caroline, when she's talking about um, why she's married so many times and why she enjoys relationships. And she says, I've always looked for passion. That's why I was often unfaithful. In other words, once that first spark had died out, Brigitte was not for sitting around watching TV and asking what was for tea the next day. She was off. She was off. That just tells me, Tom and Caroline, that uh, she's not very deep, is she? I mean, she's she's there to surf the frisson. She's, uh, she wants to seize the sizzle and the sausage. Uh, <laughs> and then once she's had her fill, um, she's not there for small talk or deep thoughts or soulmates. Do you think she gets trapped at all, Caroline? Because that look in And Grog Creative Woman is so iconic. Do you think she gets trapped in that? Because her film career comes to a pretty early end. It ends when she's, what, 39? 39, yes. She, she, I think it, it, it's the funny thing, what you, what you said, Katie. I've been thinking about a lot over the last week or so was how much intellect can we credit Brigitte Bardot with? Hmm. Because she made some incredibly clever and self-preserving choices about her career. Hmm. The first of which is that she never wanted to live in the US because she saw what that did to Marilyn Monroe and to Jane Mansfield and to Judy Garland. And from her vantage point, she could see that there was really no advantage to being a Hollywood star. And so she, her, her, her thing was always like, look, if you want me, you come to France kind of thing. Like she wasn't as caught up in the quest for fame in her mid-career as, as many other stars were. And you kind of have to respect that foresight. Yeah, yeah. But then also the roles that she played sort of didn't really evolve from that original and God-created woman character. Like she, she would play kind of like wives who were sleeping around and she would just play these uncontrollable women who wanted desperately to be good, but they just couldn't because of their own love of instinct and passion. And that was what happened. And the, but then it's almost like cinema evolved, but she didn't. So as soon as like, you know, the 60s and 70s come in and we're getting like actual theatres playing real porn <laughs> all over the US. Like there's something that kind is kind of quaint about Bardot whispering and clutching a sheet to her breasts. You know, it, it's no longer quite the risk that it was. And so it's almost like, you know, that person who's like, well, if wearing one Rolex is tasteful i'm gonna wear two <laughs> rolexes to be super tasteful <laughs> um she was like that but with sex she just like kept kind of over egging it more and more and those performances they sort of like fall apart because they're just so silly in how the sexuality gets just so over egged and the appeal just kind of stops being there so she doesn't really have the talent to increase her repertoire but she does have the foresight to know that there's only down from here and so she retreats she gives up at 39 because she says no bardo fans should see bardo turn 40 <laughs> yeah so what happened once she uh, shuffled off our screens at the age of 39 40 what what was her second act here's the thing uh, she then committed the rest of her life to being uh, an awful person oh um, it's one of the most disappointing and, and hard to square things if you're somebody who, you know, as you did, as I did, saw these Bardo films and these Bardo images as a young person and, um, you know, want to emulate it and want to capture that sort of French girl glamour. She, I mean, to be fair, commits a lot of her time and resources and energy into being an animal activist, which is, of course, admirable but also spends an almost equal amount of her time saying the worst things you can imagine about the most vulnerable people you can think of in the French press. 
Um, so she is incredibly vocal about the Muslim community. She's incredibly vocal about about gays, about um, women in the in the Me Too movement. Like she is awful again and again and again. Um, and she's fined for inciting public violence with the things that she says. And the the tragedy of this is, I mean, it's manifold. It's it's this thing first of all of like how sad that we have so few actresses left from this generation of filmmaking, these bombshells who so much of the time they died young or they died in tragic circumstances. And one of the few people that we have left has dedicated so much of her time to just being dreadful. And this is a woman who has been famous before she even had an idea of what it could be to be famous. Like she was made famous by other people. First by her mother when she pushed her into modeling and dancing. Second by her first husband. So she never made that choice as to whether or not she wanted to be in the public eye. But nonetheless, she has been in it her entire life. And that I think has darkened her worldview to a very black place. I think what happened is, is that you know she she becomes this person who like men are constantly breaking into her house. She never feels safe. She can never get a coffee by herself and and not be seen or not be pointed at or not be like Bardo's over there. What's Bardo eating? She she she's never alone. And in her later life, her her final and you know current husband is this extremely right wing guy who's been ex- involved with the far right French party this combination of things, this thing of like her always feeling hunted, her never feeling in control, her feeling as if people are trying to get her all the time. And the fact that she's always been molded by the men in her life has created this quite, quite putrid individual. There's also a story. I don't know how true this is, um, which sort of relates to her animal rights activism, but also very much Um, reflects what you've just said, Caroline. So apparently, Katie, she was once taken to court for castrating her neighbour's donkey. Uh, The reason that she castrated the neighbour's donkey was that she felt the neighbour's donkey was sexually harassing her own donkey. Wow. I don't know the ins and outs of donkey uh, politics, sexual politics, but that's a relatively extreme move. It also seems like... It entails a little bit of animal cruelty for somebody who is against animal cruelty, unless she went in there with a full veterinarian truck and anesthetics. It sounds like a crime of passion to me, this. Crime of passion. I think she just probably just went in with a machete and who knows what else. And French cuisine, she could probably do something with those testicles (laughs) afterward. (laughs) You're going to get a lot of letters after that. (laughs) From who? Donkeys? Donkey sanctuaries, French cuisine. Um, it's funny as well, because if you look back to that movie and God Created Woman, every scene where she's not shagging somebody, she's holding like a rabbit or a kitten. <laughs> like this this thing of Bardot and animals has always been this, um, in, 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 lo- in a lot of her movies, really, it's always been this strong link. And I do think it's this thing of like, she is this, you know, her, her sexuality and her creatureiness has always been likened to, you know, animals. But it's also this thing of she feels hunted all of the time and she Mm. feels this sort of like spiritual simpaticoness with animals. Mm, Yeah. So she's she's prey and she also is just a powerful pedenda. Um, (laughs) Just a little bit of alliteration there. Does Brigitte Bardot's unsavory second act obliterate 
the power of her first, do you think, Caroline? It's a, it, it, it's just an, it's an impossible question, isn't it? But I, I, I think what, what interests me a bit more is this thing of like, did her first act necessarily preclude the second one? If when, when we do this to people, when we hunt them, when we photograph them, when we celebrate, and this is the other thing as well, is like when you take this person who her entire life, she was framed as, oh, she's raising eyebrows again. Another controversial move from Bardot. The Catholic Church speaks out about Bardot. She kind of becomes one of these people who's like, well, people have always said that I'm um, outrageous and that I'm controversial, but history, I've always been on the right side of. And everyone has always said that like, actually my approach to sexuality was good. So obviously I that's how I am about everything, you know? So she becomes one of those people that can't be told no, or can't be told that she's being too much because almost being told that she's too much is confirmation of her own identity, if you know what I mean. Yeah. What do we have today, Caroline, that we wouldn't have without Brigitte Bardot? Um, women walking around in their boyfriend's shirts. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that. That will be on her gravestone. Anything else? Um, winged eyeliner, which I'm wearing right now because that, uh, like, I, I yeah, I think most women are still doing their makeup like Brigitte Bardot. I think that hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> yeah. The bikini as well. Does the bikini, I imagine the bikini happens. Does the bikini spread as quickly as it does without Brigitte, um, tiptoeing around in one? Oh yeah. Fair, fair. Possibly the bikini exists because of Brigitte Bardot. She's the inventor of the bikini, the inventor of walking around a man's shirt. Um, the inventor of being barefoot. She's also the inventor of, of like wearing like a capri pant and a, a sort of oversized t-shirt and bare feet and therefore being like the most sexiest woman alive. I think um, she's I think she's the inventor of responding uh, lasciviously to bongos. <laughs> That's <laughs> that the power too. of the bongo, Katie. That's been happening for many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caroline O'Donoghue, thank you so much for this incisive cultural analysis and also just giving me an excuse to talk about sex which is just one of my favorite things to do puts me in my happy place you know what i I think we've been remarkably tasteful considering her life was totally defined by sex well there you go we've managed to straddle quite an unwieldy (laughs) set of circumstances well played katie (laughs) well played oh yeah it's one thing I find myself wondering after that very enjoyable episode, Katie. Yes. And that is how different it would have been if Brigitte Bardot had been born in, say, uh, Harlow, like me, in Essex, and had been called Susan Jones. Would everything else still have worked? Or was the Frenchness and the Brigitte Bardotness essential to it? I think the Frenchness is key because if she were born in Britain and came of age, in the 50s, I think you would have had a whole different slant on her sexuality. I think it would have been more of a carry-on situation. It would have been broader and more farcical. And more Hattie Jakes. Yeah, just not, not, not quite, you know, hitting the bullseye the yeah. way she did. Do you, when we've been watching back these clips of old films, of the old videos, um, it is inescapable, isn't it? You know, that magic still carries on down the years. Well, she's timeless, and I think it does... uh, Caroline kept referencing her creatureness, and I think that's actually really accurate because she actually transcends those social niceties, and she's very essential in her appeal. You know, she's really just down to that that rawness, you know, that that animal nature. So um, I think that's the thing that is 
is timeless because it, there's nothing dated about that. That is just, it is what it is. And Billy had to put her in. Billy had to put her in. I mean, he confessed to us that he was having some uh, juvenile stirrings. About putting it in. <laughs> in in the, in the squash tomatoes region of his anatomy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, there's no way that he could have overlooked her and uh, very much just in the same way that Elvis continues to shape our idea of uh, what is appealing and, and what is beautiful and what is sexy and what is dangerous. I think Brigitte does the same thing for us. Nobody can deny Brigitte's pedendum power. It's a great phrase that, Katie. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I could see that with an exclamation mark on a T-shirt. Or perhaps a coffee mug. Would, would you wear a T-shirt saying pedendum power on it? Not at the school pickup and drop off, but perhaps on a night out, I would. I think you should. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's do merch. Let's. Oh. This is a merch idea. I think we've just stumbled onto something because uh, we have Quantum Entanglement. Which for- is our prog rock. A prog rock album, and that comes from the Einstein discussion. We have Damp Cloth Utopia, which was a phrase that came out of our Dacron episode. Um, Monkey Death Ship. Monkey Death Ship, which came out of our vaccination episode. We have uh, Frozen Ass Talk. Don't forget. From Disneyland. (laughs) uh, Supine Chin Stroker from our private correspondence. Um, I think all of these catchy little phrases. They are ready for their close-up on merchandise. I could certainly see these on a mug, Katie. Um, Dank cloth utopia might be appropriate on a tea towel. On a tea towel. I think it's perfect. It's form meets function. Well, if you would be interested in that merchandise, maybe drop us a little note. You can follow us and, of course, subscribe. But we are contactable at Spread That Fire. Email us, fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Perfect. Now, next week, we are going to be talking about the Hungarian revolution that is encapsulated in the lyric Budapest. But uh, if you can't wait till then, there is another podcast to enjoy. It is Death of a Film Star. These are the stories of the stars we lost too soon from Judy Garland and Chadwick Boseman and Robin Williams. You can just search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. I can recommend those personally, Casey. I wrote some of them. I know. Your fingerprints are all over them, and they are mucky fingerprints. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. 
Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.